0: Chapter 6 Then they expect you to get a career Manningham Lane was the red light district of Bradford, about to gain national and international infamy as the epicentre of the most notorious series of murders in British criminal history. When I arrived there as a new graduate, the Yorkshire Ripper was about to start a depraved killing spree from his base in North Bradford, and for four years we were subjected to one attack after another the first few on prostitutes and thenceforth women in general i lived in Chapeltown, leeds and commenced my career in bradford both in the heartland of the 20 attacks that left 13 women butchered history now records what peter sutcliffe did and how he targeted young women but all we knew at the time was that there was a killer on the loose and even young men like me were part of a terrified community. The public taunting of a bemused constabulary through scrawled letters and audacious taped messages to the policeman leading the chase, saying, I'm Jack, and you are having no luck catching me, left us wary of opening our front doors at night. The police were powerless and clueless as our area became a media circus. Remember, I was Scaredy Cat Paul, made unduly nervous by my upbringing, reinforced by a fixation with William Peter Blassie's The Exorcist. Adding the fact that my ground-floor room of the flat in Chapel Town I shared with the now-mature Chris Perks and the born-mature but miserable Norman Green had an eerie staircase leading down to a creepy cellar. I organised the layout of the room so that my bedhead kept the cellar door firmly shut and blocked. I don't know how I coped, Well I do. It was with drink, music, and the occasional visit from Sue. Music wise, belatedly finding out that the legendary spiders from Mars were actually from Hull helped. Fast forward 40 years to City of Culture 2017, a highlight for me and my company as a major partner was the remaining living spiders getting together at the Hull City Hall to play David Bowie's iconic Ziggy Stardust album in its entirety. It was a wonderful night. Ziggy played guitar back in Hull, our sewer group poster trumpeted. Such a pity that neither David Bowie, died in 2016, nor Hull's own Mick Ronson, died too young in 1993, could make it although you felt that they were there in spirit, sharing a microphone as well as the adulation. Back in the present, my all-time rock hero John Lennon had by this time become introspective and felt that a working-class hero, something to be. I knew that even after a nice childhood and a decent education, when they've tortured you and scared you for 20-odd years, to quote the song, Lennon noted, then they expect you to pick a career. His song and my time at university convinced me that I was in fact not working class, even though my family was, and I exhibited many working class behaviours and values. Not working class, but not middle class either, was a state of mind that many of my generation found themselves in at that time. The expected career was in the family business in Humber Street, Hull Shops, York Market with their half a stories and folklore, These created a culture and a sense of belonging that I had turned my back on. The expected career in professional football had turned its back on me. Although I had some bad luck with injuries, I had come to the realisation that I just wasn't good enough. So, feeling somehow classless and with a new family of Sue, Patrick and her parents, I commenced an expected career that I neither expected or coveted with a Lancashire building company called Fram Gerrard, who had recently opened an office in Yorkshire. If I thought Leeds was depressing when I arrived five years earlier, it was like Kensington, Chelsea compared to Bradford. Hull wasn't posh, but its people were my people, warm and friendly. One really great person in Bradford who became one of my people was my first and only boss at Fram's, managing director Rodney Anderson. He hired me as his first ever graduate when they were largely unknown to the construction industry, and treated me as if he had acquired a new thoroughbred racehorse. This diminutive stocky Mancunian had a broad accent, thin in wispy blonde hair, a wonderful flashing smile, and the most twinkly blue eyes I have ever seen. He excitedly ushered me into the big old house on Manningham Lane that was trying in vain to look like a head office. Rodney was only in his mid-forties and burst with energy and confidence that sprang from his meteoric rise in the industry. This rise was fuelled by his pivotal role in the building of the new Manchester Airport, a staggeringly successful project for the company that earned him a directorship. He stood with me in the general office as the team gathered and slowly walking around me, he eventually introduced his new BSC. What is it? It's a BSC, Rodney, would have transferred beautifully into Only Fools and Horses a decade later. What does BSC mean? Came a query in a Scottish accent. British Sugar Corporation. The rest laughed and I blushed as Rodney taught me the first of his many lessons. Take what you do very seriously, but never take yourself too seriously. The acerbic comment had come from Jock, the Scottish senior estimator, who was to introduce me to the issue of mental health in the workplace. He was in his late fifties, reed thin, with grey hair and moustache that made him look like Neville Chamberlain. He was tall, but his height was diminished by a permanent stoop. Jock was a dour, miserable git, as only a Scot could be. I suspected that he was god like my sister, possibly Presbyterian, as he was vehemently anti-fun, and hated colourful language of any kind. Unfortunately, I was to start my career working with him. A match made in heaven. The issue at that time with Jock was I think what came to be known as scoreboard pressure. He had not secured a building contract for the company for some time so the one I was to start assisting him with was hence an important tender that we needed to win. This pile of morose Gaelic flesh and bone wrapped in a shabby grey cardigan His glasses on the end of his nose, and the pencil always behind his ear, was a joy. Was Rodney testing me? Jock certainly did. Where's my pencil? Behind your ear, Jock. Stop messing about, which ear? Give me strength. The only relief was the twice-daily visit of our lovely broad Yorkshire tea lady, Ronnie, and her trolley laden with hot-buttered scones and huge metal teapots, dispensed the best fresh brew imaginable. In her pure white smock and jaunty matching hat she was as warm and comforting as her produce. Everybody loved Ronnie. Those first days collating that bid were unbelievably tense. My job was to ring all the subcontractors to check their submitted price was the very best available. The team worked hard and late into the evening to get the bid in. But without acknowledgement or thanks from our senior estimator. We had given it our best shot and were convinced it was a good bid. The wait for the result was thankfully a short one. As Ronnie came in with their trolley at break time the next morning, Jock had just put the phone down. Tea anyone was Ronnie's usual call for the team to have a break and a natter, but that day the only reaction was that we cast our eyes furtively towards Jock who was staring vacantly straight ahead of him. We knew what had happened. The result was in. The silence was deafening, and I'm sure I saw his moustache quivering. In response to Ronnie's innocent offer of refreshment, Jock exploded. TEE was his first drawn-out utterance. His next was far louder, and even more Scottish. Tea! The eruption was obviously imminent that's not tea it's fucking piss and with that he got up from his seat and walked out of the office we concluded that our bid had been unsuccessful i never saw jock again i was transferred immediately to a contract in distress in central bradford but not before learning that estimating is far from easy and that it's so hard to put the right number on a construction project that it can even make a Scottish Presbyterian curse. The tragedy for Jock is that he probably had the right number on that vital job, as so often it went to the bidder with the lowest price. There were so many variables and risks either to ignore or take into account, and a flawed process started by clients who want the lowest price possible rather than the right price for the job. I would later come to see lowest price competitive tendering as the curse of the construction industry. The wrong price starts a cycle of diminished quality, poor sustainability and adversarial bunfight in which contractors and subcontractors fighting for survival take on clients who don't want to pay any more than the original tendered price. The cost of this conflict is borne by everybody involved and the only winners are the claims consultants and lawyers. But the big loser is the construction industry, and everybody in it. Much later in my career, the Latham Report, in the Team, for the Major Government, and the Egan Report, Rethinking Construction, for the Blair Government, recognised and dealt with the issues that caused my concerns around poor deranged jock in Bradford. Unfortunately, both these worthy and vital pieces of work were routinely ignored, by both clients and contractors in the construction industry, who seemed to know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Poor Jock and all who have followed him. That was not your fault. Amen. So it was now out onto site to build Summit, and a project in distress that had obviously been secured at the wrong price. Bradford Permanent Building Society was, as the name suggests, an institution in the city, and its prestigious location and design illustrated that. Its impressive white sculptured concrete and glass facade on six floors was modern and no doubt nominated for architectural awards at the time. By the time I went to site, all of the structure was complete and the finishings inside well underway, working from the top storey down as is traditional with multi-storey construction. Any silly bugger can start a building job off, Rodney commented as he told me I was going there but it takes somebody who knows what they're doing to finish the bloody thing. This was obviously the case because it was weeks behind programme and the client was getting most concerned. Also it was beginning to lose a lot of money commercially with the deduction of liquidated damages a certainty. The site manager and project lead was Mike Turner, a young, late thirties Paul Simon lookalike. Mike was a professional with no trade jack Armstrong his number 2 being the old senior old general foreman with a background in joinery they both agreed with rodney that the way to get this job finished and out of trouble was to segment the building into three sets of two floors and give each to a single manager responsible for getting their bit over the line all would report to jack as general foreman gf and he would report to mike as before I was given floors 5 and 6, and when I walked up to view my new patch, I was shocked. It was carnage. Although the areas were nearly finished, with plaster patching, decoration, flooring and suspended ceilings going on, it was an unholy tip, with workmen tripping over each other and damaging each other's works without a care. The atmosphere was surly, selfish and aggressive, both between individuals and towards management, things going backwards rather than forwards. The suspended ceiling gang were threatening to pull ceilings down that their employer had not yet paid them for, and Jimmy, the foreman plasterer, was systematically shagging the cleaners. I did wonder why a foreman plasterer was interested in a bit of plaster patching at the end of a job, but then it dawned on me, there were always cleaners around at this stage, and he was a sexual predator. This concerned me because Sue would occasionally come to Bradford and do a bit of cleaning on site for some extra money if we were short. Added to this, Big Humanuk, the Polish labourer, was raging because someone had stolen his beloved Kango mechanised jackhammer. Leaks were springing as the heating was being tested, and the clerk of works was refusing to inspect anything. I nicknames, floors six and five, respectively, Sodom and Gomorrah and set about doing things differently. If you don't change something, nothing will change. Or, do what you always did, and you will get what you always got, were my career phrases gleaned from my biblical site debut for Fram Gerard. Firstly, I dressed more smartly, starting to wear my football blazer sporting my East Riding County Colours badge on the breast pocket. This set the tone, and the badge became a talking point allowing me to engage with the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. I then stopped the job completely while we had a good clean-up, concurrently sorting out the payment for the suspended ceiling gang with our quantity surveyors. Jimmy agreed to keep his substantial willy in his dirty white overalls during daylight hours, and Humanuk was persuaded that he didn't need his weapon of mass destruction at this stage of the job. He could concentrate on keeping the site clean and tidy, especially for me. I treated them all with respect and demanded respect in return. They appreciated my engagement with them and began to understand I was on their side. Treating people with dignity and respect wasn't learned at university. It's not hard and it's the basis of proper leadership. This episode prompted an early airing of my mantra, leadership is a solution, now tell me the problem. It was the solution. I was given six weeks to get these floors finished and we got there in five. So I was given the next two floors and got those over the line within a fortnight. Rodney seemed relieved rather than pleased, which I understood. When it was all over, he asked me a direct question, what I had done to turn my area round?" And I was honest, up to a point. What I didn't say was that you never saw Mike Turner or Jack Armstrong out on site. They stopped in their office, or, as I like to describe it, hid under the duvet. They never engaged their workforce or visibly set the tone, preferring to look at commercial considerations and potential legal claims in the office. I never saw them, and I was part of their management team. This created a total leadership void. What his BSE did tell him was what prevails on sewell construction sites to this day you cannot work effectively in a shit-tip, and that on a building site, cleanliness is next to godliness. In fact, Sewell Construction's project manager, Martin Stanley, would later introduce his 10 minutes a day rule, whereby everybody on site stops what they are doing for a period in the day purely to tidy up. It works. Taking the goods hoist down early merely because it was out of its allocated time and therefore over budget, was a false economy, as it was much more expensive to handball the stuff out of the building. Rodney was pleased that his BSc was making common sense part of the curriculum, because this wasn't always the case with his site management, who were at times too commercially driven. I was then transferred to Doncaster, where English Estates was developing one of their many factories the company delivered for them, this one being an extension to one built a few years before. I was to gain experience of setting out a site guarded by senior engineer John McMurray and basically to be his chain lad, that is to say at the idiots end of the tape measure and bashing pegs into the ground rather than looking through the instruments. This was wholly appropriate as my eye defect proved a problem, together with my lack of spatial and practical acumen previously discovered both in the 11 plus exam and on the scullery floor. This turned out to be a blessing in disguise, for I was exonerated from the biggest disaster I ever saw on a building site. I got some great digs in Dunney at the family home of my old school friend Peter Berry. He had by then swapped his chugging, but victorious motorbike, for a chugging car. Peter was now a mechanical engineer working at Drax Power Station. His late father was the spit of the television comedian Harry Worth as we never ceased to remind him of at school. And now, his petite, newly widowed mother took great pleasure at looking after her boys once again. Big full English breakfasts and cups of hot cocoa with huge paving stone flapjacks for supper. The renewal of such home comforts seemed luxurious to us who had recently been starving students. A little later, I was to be Berry's best man at his wedding to the pushy precise Jenny at St Mary's Church in Beverley and after at the Beverley Arms. We were tragically unsurprised when he revealed during the pre-wedding haircut Sue was administering that he didn't want to marry somebody who had a face to sink a thousand ships and didn't like very much either. I was sure he meant it and pondered whether to raise the matter at the appropriate time during the service. I chose not to. I do wonder if the marriage lasted. Having never been one for reunions or nostalgia of any kind, I can't provide an update in this memoir. Sorry. Back to that building site in Doncaster and the tragic miscalculation that was to blight the career of site engineer John McMurray. John wouldn't have been that much older than me, but he was taller and better looking, with fair hair and a beautifully manicured trendy beard. In truth, he looked too sophisticated for a building site, and more suited to a TV studio. He was a nice lad though, so to see his face when the structural steel arrived triumphantly on sight, only to find that it did not fit together, was excruciating. The huge cranes had large pieces of steel hanging and swaying off them in the Doncaster air, but with no home to go to, because the concrete foundation bases and their holding down bolts had been set out wrongly. Jong had used the wrong baseline off the existing structure and I will never forget the look on his face when he realised that it was his error. I was by his side in the site office as we agonised over the decision as to whether to send the steel back to be altered or to jackhammer the concrete bases out and recast them. We decided on the latter because it was the cheaper option but to listen endlessly to those pneumatic hammers, noisily and expensively at work, carried a psychological cost which would last well beyond the monetary one. I can still hear those hammers now. I'm sure John can too. Must have been the devil paying you back, Johnny Mac, for God making you so handsome. I don't know what John's penance turned out to be, but mine wasn't a penance at all. It was what I'd been yearning for since working at home. I was to work on a contract in Hull. My company, now called Fairclough Building, following their acquisition of both Fram Gerrard and Sir Lindsay Parkinson & Company, renowned house builders, based in Garforth, had some more English estates factories to build, this time on Sutton Fields Industrial Estate in East Hull. Fab. It was here that I was to become acquainted with another one of the great characters of my career in Richard Clough. His nickname in the company was Papa Clough, thanks to his looking quite Greek, with a thick mop of dark brown curly hair and a bristling moustache. He was, however, a Yorkshire boy through and through, born in Keithley and now living in the lovely village of Oakworth near Haworth in Bronte Country, with his lovely wife, the dutiful, bespectacled radiologist, Sue. A little older than me, and a little taller, Richard was pulled thin, with energy to burn, motivation to envy, and ambition so intense, it worried me. His Bradford accent was as broad as he was cheeky and mischievous. His career rise from chain boy to engineer, to foreman to site manager, was meteoric and legendary in the company. Rodney predicted that mine would be similar, setting me the target when I joined of becoming a project manager by the age of 26. This was going to be some going, but as you will see, I made it just. Papa Clough helped me for he was such a go-getting entrepreneur for someone like me to hang around with at my impressionable age. You tend to become who you hang around with, as I tell the kids now. More on that later. Rodney said that we would get on and he was right. Sue, Patrick and I spent time in Richard's lovely refurbished old cottage at his legendary weekend parties. Around midnight, our sham Greek host would emerge wearing nothing but his budgie smuggling underpants and gyrate in a sozzled trance amongst his guests like a psychotic lap dancer. His pasty white body, with no chest but little protruding belly, moved slightly nauseatingly in time with the music he had carefully selected. It was a sight to behold, but had about as much sexual tension as songs of praise on the telly the next day. It was at one of our weekend stays in Oakworth that we had our first big shock in our parenting of Patrick. We reckon all parents get one or two of these whilst nurturing a child to adulthood, and this was ours. Sue was always fastidious in her care of our lovely black collie-cross spaniel, Sheba, and passed this discipline on to Patrick from an early age, always warning him to close doors so as not to let her out to get lost. Rich and his wife Sue had a black and tan cross terrier called Wagger, so we were not short of a dog fix during the weekend. Their doggy-dog caused a mini-crisis during the first night when he wanted to go out for a wee and for some reason disturbed three-year-old Patrick rather than his master or mistress. We found out later that Patrick had unlocked and opened the front door leading to a long country lane and surrounding fields, and when Wagger went out, not only to go for a wee, but also for a walk, Patrick felt duty-bound to follow him. When the bedraggled little boy in pyjamas got into bed with us, and was asked why he felt so cold, he revealed that he'd been chasing Wagger so that he didn't get lost. His description of his adventure revealed that he had walked right up to the top of the lane and then onto the busy main road into Haworth. He described in detail the red telephone box, which must have been half a mile to a mile away. We both had kittens. Patrick had retrieved Wagger, bless him, but this made us feel like inattentive parents. We stressed about this near miss and never left keys in any door again. On site, the project was in a hurry and Richard sailed close to the wind to save time and make money for the firm, and also for himself. I was concerned and disapproved when he did an early side deal with the subcontractor responsible for the earthwork to sell him some of the surplus topsoil for cash. I don't know why I got myself implicated by agreeing to be the lookout at the end of the road in case our contract manager, the wily old Joe Parkinson, turned up. Joe lived in Hull so could call in at the site at any time. The kid who had never even scrumped an apple just hoped that it wouldn't be in the midst of the great sudden topsoil robbery. Unfortunately, it was. Shit. Joe's fat, squashed grey head came around the corner that sunny afternoon in his blue cortina, turning from the main arterial road onto the side road where we were building. He went past me on the corner with a surprised glance and he must have known from the look on my face that something was amiss. I realised that on foot I was never going to beat him to the site. While we ever thought this was a good defensive strategy, I shall never know. The mobile phone was not to be with us for many years yet. The wagons full of topsoil were passing Joe going the other way, where he must have known that they were due to be stored in a heap on the site. Smoking gun meets judgement day. We knew our careers at Fairclough hung by a thread at that moment and in the hands of this seasoned old pro who had seen it all. As the junior member of staff, I left the explanations to Cluffy and went away to observe some ground beans being excavated in the parched earth. We were a talented pair, favourites of Rodney Anderson, with a project way ahead of programme and making lots of money, so I hoped this would be enough to save our bacon. It was... Richard emerged from his meeting with Joe, and by the grin on his face underneath that ridiculous 1970s moustache, I gathered that we had got away with it. Joe knew what was going on, of course. You can't kid a kidder, as my dad used to say, but Joe chose to turn a blind eye and allow two young people strapped for cash to make a much-needed few quid on the side. Bless him. Sometimes a dividing line between entrepreneurialism and illegality is a fine one and it was too marginal for me on this occasion. It did however give my family a holiday to Mallorca that new year that we would never otherwise have had. The factory project was not complicated consisting of two steel boxes with minimal finishes but boy did we nail it. Ahead of programme, way ahead of budget and exceeding client expectations. This success was achieved through passion and hard work, with Cluffy and I leading by example. From spreading the concrete blinding, vibrating the concrete pores, late night's power floating the slab and then sweeping it with the labourers at handover. Sue once again was the most glamorous Mrs Mop you ever did see when we all mucked in at the end to clean it. The pace and metabolic rate and productivity of the work was awesome and showed what could be achieved if the right term was set from the top. It was the opposite of Bradford Permanent Building Society and it was purely about leadership. They say you become who you hang around with and those fleeting summer months in 1970s Hull with the amazing Richard Papperclough gave me an education in delivery, and a reputation for hard work and quality that gave me promotion and a much bigger site on which to ply my trade. I also hope the topsoil found a good home and is now growing lots of green stuff, exhaling oxygen into the hull air all these years later. Two young people in their mid-twenties had smashed this job leading me never to underestimate the ability of the young to deliver when given the chance. I had played semi-professional football at 16 run this job with Richard in my early 20s, and I was to get the first large project of my own at the tender age of 26, and a directorship before I was 30. I really cannot imagine that happening nowadays. To quote my business guru hero Tom Peters, we must grovel at the feet of the young. Respect them, hire them, hang around with them, and you will be forever young. You will then embrace change, look forwards rather than backwards and be modern in attitude in order to create and maintain a forward-looking organisation. Little did I know when leaving those two new factories on Suttonfields Industrial Estate that within 20 years my own company would have created its own Geneva Way Business Park on its eastern boundary and that Richard Clough would have his own property company. Passion, talent and energy can do wonderful things and if my career has proved anything, it is that age is no barrier. My other reflection on leaving this contract that was so pivotal in my career concerns the often denigrated and ridiculed subject of health and safety. For while on this site, I experienced two accidents. The first happened to me when I was supervising a JCB digger excavating the drainage. The driver Peter and I miscommunicated, him thinking my hand signal meant for him to proceed and get on with it, whereas I intended to signal that he had to stop while I went to have a word with him. So, as I approached, he started the machine, and its digging arm knocked me into the air to land behind the digger, and thankfully next to the trench rather than in it. I was shaken rather than injured, only my dignity was dented, and we thought nothing more about it, not even making an entry in the accident book. For the second time in the recent past, I was prostrate on the ground, face down, thinking I had got away with one, but with no Mod Parker to help on this occasion. The second accident came as we were finishing off the contract. An electrician working on a tower scaffold on the high-level lighting lost his balance, leading the whole thing to collapse with him on the top of it. I was no more than 10 metres away and saw the scaffold crumble and him hit the floor with such a bang it almost made me sick. To see him twitching whilst unconscious had me panicking and I ran to the site office to phone for an ambulance. The electrician was ultimately okay but the experience made me a health and safety zealot. Not through legislation and fear of prosecution but the fear of actually hurting someone and them not going home safely to their family at night. In the next 25 years, health and safety legislation and the drive by people of my mindset transform the construction industry from being the most dangerous sector in British industry to one which is now much safer and its people more protected. I am proud that Sewell construction can now regularly go a year or more without a single reportable accident. This improves morale and shows that our sites are tidy and efficient. That's why I get madder than hell at those people who roll their eyes and utter bloody health and safety. Dinosaurs. My next stop was Cottingley, a big sprawling site on the main road into Leeds, with new characters to meet and lessons to learn. You really need to be a sponge at this young age, soaking up every experience, as indeed you need to be all of your life. They say there is either a sponge or a rock between your ears. Sponge is better. Fairclough having acquired, as mentioned earlier, both Fram Gerard and Sir Lindsay Parkinson, it was no surprise that the project in Cottingley was a big local authority social housing scheme. One downside of the merger was that Rodney Anderson would move on. In the inevitable reshuffle, he returned to Lancashire. This was a blow for me because he had hired me, believed in me and promoted me. I feel as if I've only had two real bosses in my life. Rodney and Bridlington Town's Bob Dennison, and they had both departed my life with me still in my early 20s. They did, however, leave me with a legacy of respect for them and an ideal of what a good leader should look like. From then on, in my leadership positions, I have always measured how my people treat me on how I would deal with Rodney and Bob in a similar situation. My Rodney Anderson test is, would I have treated Rodney like this? Whether it was being late for an appointment, slow walking a project, being cheeky, whatever, those that did not pass had to be sorted. I also gleaned from both men, to the benefit of the rest of my career, that leadership is not much more complex than treating people as you would like to be treated yourself. To date, 1976 was still one of the longest hottest summers in British meteorological history and I spent it on a baking, sloping site running down to the main trunk road that meandered into Leeds from the M62 at the bottom of the valley. I had easy access travelling every day from Hull now the Eastern Motorway had been finally completed. My boss and site manager for these 300 plus houses was a former bricklayer called Doug Maris, who'd come from Sir Lindsay Parkinson. Another broad Yorkshire accent, but this time with a slight stutter, his false teeth clacking as he spoke. The more animated his conversation, the more clacking the accompaniment. so it was always easy to perceive when he was getting excited. His pallid, drawn face identified a smoker with a poor diet, and his clothes were those of a man a generation older. Get me a custard cream and ten woodbines," was his daily morning order to little Doug, our tea boy, or should I say, tea man. He must have been in his mid-forties and could have been the long-lost identical twin brother of Ronnie Corbett. Everybody treated Doug as if he was a young lad and he seemed to take it all in good part, smiling and joking along with the cracks about his size and the thick back glasses he wore. This was a cover for his sensitivity as I discovered one day when I'd forgotten my engineer's record book and had to make the long trek back from the bottom of the site to retrieve it. When I first entered the office complex, I heard voices coming from the kitchen, but I knew Doug would be on his own, so I sneaked down the corridor for a furtive look through the hatch. He was staring at the wall mirror at his full height, pretending to be John Wayne, the famous film cowboy hardman of the era. He was having a typical Wayne confrontation, but with himself playing both parts in a Texas cowboy drawl. "'Get off of your horse!' The hell I will. I thought it funny at first, but on reflection it wasn't, and I was glad that I never treated Doug with anything but the greatest of respect and affection. The site at Cottingley had an eerie feel, like a recently cleared battleground, as the topsoil had been stripped off, revealing thousands of square yards of dark brown baked earth running down the ring road, which contrasted sharply with the enormous grassy hill on the other side of the road. Our site setup commanded a view from the top of the hill on Cottingley Drive, next to two identical concrete tower blocks that we nicknamed Salt and Pepper. It was huge compared to what I was used to, and had a complex of prefabricated Fairclough branded orange panels with shallow sloping felt roofs. It was the base for over a hundred staff and workers, with the adjacent plank compound probably having more diggers and dumpers than the sum total I had come across in my career to date. I was in the team responsible for the groundworks of strip foundations and drainage. We set out the trenches with pegs, string lines and sand marking the digs required. We concreted the foundations and set out the brickwork on them with shiny masonry nails driven into the fresh concrete so that the substructure bricklayers could take over. It was very satisfying to be able to immediately see the fruits of our labour, altering the landscape in such a manifest way. The drainage work itself was sublet to local Irish legends that were P and AJ Murphy Limited. That was limited to working with earth under the ground rather than their legal status. Peter with flat cap and glasses was the digger driver and Ball Tony was the supervisor and brains behind the operation. You would have never known they were brothers. There were two or three Irish navvies, Grafting and Pipeline, who would have more likely fitted that bill. The fact that I love them to bits, and that they amuse me no end, may have had something to do with my Irish heritage. The Foundation gang had the JCB artiste that was the grumpy John Mulhern in the digger, with Jack the Ganger and his team of labourers working within the excavations. The engineers were me, Dave Nottingham, Tony Shires, and our leader, Mick Starling. Mick never remotely wanted to be any sort of leader, it was just that he was much more experienced and talented than the rest of us put together. Thick set, with curly brown hair, over a full round face, with a winning smile, Mick was the diametric opposite to Richard Clough in demeanour, and of John McMurray in engineering skills. He was unambitious, content with his lot, with wife Joan, no kids, Leeds United, and the little semi detached house up the road in a nice cul de sac in South Leeds. They were lovely, uncomplicated people with whom I would stop on occasion after a late summer's night on site. The extracurricular activity for which we remained at work on those late summer evenings was either another scam or an enterprising venture. Site investigations had revealed a substantial quantity of redundant existing services under the site and if these could be retrieved they had a significant scrap value. So we engineers identified the service routes. John Mulhern's magic digger gave them the light of day and Jack's gang with the illicit transport to take them down to the scrap merchants. Everybody was a winner. Nice work which got everyone much more than a holiday. Rumour had it that Mick put his towards a share in a racehorse. Joan and Sue still correspond at Christmas with the family news. Mick and I don't participate because our blokey independent characters dictate that friends are only close when they are relevant. Mick was a site engineer to the end of his career and a bloody good one at that. The best in fact, proving that not everybody needs to climb the ladder. Leaving behind jobs they were great at to take promotions to positions in which they are nowhere near as effective. We tend to elevate people to leadership positions based on the wrong criteria, such as technical competence, a desire to hold on to them, or because it's their turn. Then we wonder why we have a leadership deficit and skill shortages. Mick had a successful and fulfilling career, just doing what he loved, adding value and gaining respect everywhere he went. Nice one, mate. Project-wise, the groundworks were flying, taking advantage of the dry weather and the talented team that gelled. We blitzed the programme with high productivity that would amaze the construction workers of today, and measured incentive bonus payments that reflected the extraordinary performance. The only problem for me was the dry dust and grit that got under my contact lenses and scratched my eyes. This could get pretty painful at times. I often drove home after a windy day with tears streaming down my cheeks. One of my weekly tasks was to hand out the wage packets from my office window every Thursday. I did wonder at times whether the four years spent getting my degree had been really worth it. My wage was always in the bottom 20% of those on site. However, I did come round to thinking that these guys were super talented and at the top of their game in a competitive labour market, so why shouldn't they be better paid? It still irks me when people look down on building site work. In my youth, if you couldn't get anything else more worthwhile, you could always go down to the local builder and get a job labouring or hod carrying. Whenever I encounter this sort of snobbery, I always tell this true story of what happened to me that summer on the Cottingley site one of my daily tasks was to bang on the messroom door to get the lads out and back to work after a well-earned break for some reason building workers needed this ritual encouragement back then come on lads let's be having you was not invented by norwich city owner delia smith trust me chop chop campers back on your heads one time i overheard the mess room lads slagging off our bonus surveyor john Murgatroyd. Walls are as I advised them as they tumbled out of the cabin. And ice cream. Bricklayer Dave Tyler responded with a wide boyish grin. On this particular day, at all three breaks, I had trouble with one of the labourers, Trevor, who surprisingly was not Irish, but a Geordie. He just would not come out to restart work to any sort of timescale, and by the afternoon break I'd had enough, and breached an unwritten but sacred covenant by entering the cabin. Trevor was in the far corner with his head down over a newspaper. Come on, Trev, what's up with you? The answer is the moral of the story and an antidote to the perception that building workers have a low intellect. This guy, with his flat cap, roll-your-own-cigarette and big wellies, was one clue short of completing that day's Times Crossword that he'd worked on during those three short breaks. Never judge a book by its cover. This BSE would have not got one clue, never mind be one short. We're all great at something. Also, we all make errors. The summer was coming to a close and the nights were drawing in. All the foundation and roads were complete and the superstructure brickwork with its scaffolding cloak was emerging. P and A.J. Murphy had turned their attention to excavating for the main service connections onto the site and the main drainage that was going into the big sewer on the verge of the ring road. It was on our side of the road, thank God, for closing off the main road would have been a nightmare. I am sure that I had alerted Peter to the large, oil-filled mains electricity cable that was in the vicinity of their dig. In hindsight, I could have been more explicit, but these were hugely experienced people and I trusted them to take due care. I had got a flyer leaving at 430 Doug Marris was always really sympathetic regarding my journey of an hour and a half to and from the site. We had discussed my son Patrick, waiting until six o'clock, before I could positively respond to his request, to give us a few balls, Daddy, and when I once mentioned to Doug that I intended to have a bath first, after a twelve hour day, he bollocked me about getting my priorities right. You will never get this time back, he said. Give the boy some time before your bath, or you will regret it. I was on my sanctioned flyer down the M62 when the news came on Radio Leeds that there had been a major power outage in the south of the city. Couldn't be the Murphys, could it? Oh yes, it could. Peter once joked to me that if it was wet, it was a water main, if it hissed and smelled, it was gas, and if the digger bucket turned red, it was likely to be an electricity main. Tony's bucket is going to be very red, I thought but I didn't turn around and go back to my eternal discredit and regret. Leaders show up and I didn't. Doug had a calming influence on me and was the co-author of my problem process I've used throughout my career. When confronted by a significant issue, I always go through the following steps. Don't panic. There is nothing to be gained and you just spread it. Establish the facts. Find out the truth and deal with that rather than something less. A lot a lot of stuff goes away during this step. Develop more than one scenario going forward. Have a plan A, B and maybe C. Think about the timing and tactics of implementing your decisions and either execute early with vigour or let things marinate and the answer emerge. On this occasion, with our friends at the Yorkshire Electricity Board, we discovered that the cable was not in the position shown on their records and nowhere near the necessary depth. This was no solace to the people of South Leeds, but our insurers were happy. With the completion of the substructure work, my time at Cottingley came to an end. I was redeployed to our head office in Garforth on the outskirts of Leeds, where we had lots of tenders to process and I was to help the planners input into the bids. The truth was that, after three years of cut and thrust, working with great characters on the building site, I didn't like life in the office very much. Time passed slowly and has been demonstrated. I tend to make mischief when I'm bored. The main focus of the firm's business development was the sober coalfield, field, where there had been a strategic decision to exploit the shallow coal deposits around this sleepy market town equidistant between Leeds, York and Hull. The convenience of this geography interested me, but the project didn't, and hence the working day attracted less of my energy. This was okay though, because I was concentrating on getting the house in Cottingham finished, my upcoming nuptials, and playing some cricket for the village team. I wasn't that good at cricket, but loved playing it. The time it took, and its cerebral nature, where initiative can pass between bat and ball in an instant, or take an hour. I didn't bowl at all, was an occasionally effective number 7 bat, but an enthusiastic fielder and a huge competitor who always had an opinion on strategy and tactics. Our home ground, as with my football, was King George of Playing Field on Northgate. This 20-acre patch of grass that we called the Wreck had been so significant in my life. I played out in its woodland and copses as a kid. It was home to my football teams as a schoolboy, youth, and a retiring Ulster, when I was to coach Patrick's boys' teams on its hallowed turf. The four Cottingham houses that I lived in surrounded it, and were always within short walking distance, if not adjacent. Today my hobby farm is in the very next field on its northern boundary, where dog walking is the predominant pastime. The away fixtures for the cricket team were a delightful taste of East riding English country life. We visited the chocolate box villages with idyllic greens such as Humbleton, Roos, Hunton, cranswick Lonsborough, and in particular Patterington. That Far East holding ground embodies for me the essence of those weekends. Performances and results mattered so much then, but what is left in my memory now is the fun and camaraderie of the lovely but basic lunches, the endless rain breaks and the practical jokes, none of which were original, but all funny nevertheless. There is something very civilised and comforting about being one of the cricketers, dressed in white, participating in that most English of pastimes. A visit to Patrington one sunny summer Saturday signalled Patrick's subtle change from mummy's boy to dad's sporting companion, when he and his friend the blond-haired, blue-eyed Matthew Simons declared that they were coming with me rather than stopping home with their mums. That they had their lunches already packed along with bat and ball indicated they were serious and not up for changing their minds. I watched them from my usual position at cover points, observing them play a little bit of bat and ball on the boundary and then again ridiculously early in the day to consume the tea they had packed. They were like two little old men deep in private conversation and unaware of the passage of time. This made what was happening in the game seem less important and I regretted that my dad never got to play with me. Unlike my sporting peers, I never tried to influence Patrick in any way to like what I did. I just gently allowed him to see my lifestyle and enabled his participation if this is what he wanted. His resultant lifetime attachments to Hull City and Liverpool FC and love of watching Yorkshire and England play cricket. Both sports enjoyed locally in Cottingham are a testament to this approach. Family life only suffered in one respect at this time, in that Sue, who'd married a footballer with all that entailed in becoming a soccer widow, wasn't ready for cricket. She thought that two hours was long enough to get any game over and done with, and couldn't understand why we could be gone at lunchtime and still not be back home by 8pm. This came to a head with one midsummer game away at Leaven. Unusually, I'd got a few runs and taken a couple of good catches in a fine win, but then I made the beer-induced mistake of stopping in the clubhouse to celebrate with the bachelors in the team before the coach took us home. I forgot that Sue was cooking one of her famous korma curries with homemade chapatis. I arrived home to 232 Northgate at gone 10 p.m. to find the door locked and the cold congealed indian meal together with a piece of indian bread that was by now resembling a frisbee waiting on the front doorstep lots of banging and knocking failed to get a response so i eventually decided to sleep in my car which was parked on the main road i got to sleep with no trouble but as the night grew colder i heard a tapping on the car window i slowly opened my eyes but the only thing i could see through the window with three shiny silver buttons glistening in the street light directly overhead. I sat up, rubbed my eyes, and opened the door to hear the policeman slowly and deliberately ask me what was going on. I told him the exact truth, that I lived in the house directly in front of us, and hoped he wouldn't think that I'd been driving. He escorted me down our front path, and knocked quietly on the door. His touch must have made the difference, because this time Sue so answered. Sorry to disturb you, madam. Does this man live here? I fully expected Sue to say that she'd never seen me before in her life, but she didn't, and I was off the hook, with the police at least. The copper just looked disdainfully at the chicken coma on the doorstep and stalked silently down the path. I picked it up and went inside to face the music, which was to be neither Ian Hunter's not the Hoople nor Eric Clapton's Cream both of whom were my favourites at the time. Out of the blue, I got a call to go back to the site in Cottingley. I was pleased that firstly they wanted me, and secondly because I felt stultified and trapped like a cage lion in the office and needed some space and fresh air. The project was now in its final phase, with testing, commissioning and handovers the priority rather than building. I was given a section to be responsible for but this time with the promotion to General Foreman reporting direct to Doug. This was one step and one year away from the target Rodney Anderson had given me during my Bradford induction of being a site manager by the time I was 26. Once again things went really well with all the team pulling on the same end of the rope with high energy and great motivation. The highest level of these attributes was being attained one day when With an engineer short, I went back on the tools to set the theodolite up to give the ground workers who were on paths and landscaping a peg and level or two. My first glance through the telescope made me aware that my view was way out and in fact skewed towards the field across the road rather than into our sight. I then noticed that I had accidentally trained the lens onto a courting couple in the long grass and what should have been a setting out peg and nail in my sight was in fact a bare white bum in motion. I didn't think my exclamation was that noticeable, but within seconds a bunch of my colleagues was crowded around my theodolite in what must have been its most popular ever outing. We quickly decided to be fair about things and an orderly queue was formed with a 15 second viewing slot before going back to the end of the queue. It was then that I noticed a non team member amongst us, who I heard before seeing. The clacking pallet meant it could only be our fearless leader, Doug Maris, come to join our pathetic legion of voyeurs. But I didn't wait to see if the rate of clacking increased when it was his turn to view. I was down the road and across to the field opposite to inform the couple that they were on candid camera and giving lots of pleasure to building workers on the site across the road. It wasn't their amazed expressions that live in the memory, but that snowy white bum, and the clacking palate of an old man who should have known better. My second spell at Cottingley was cut abruptly short by the news that the company had won one of the first Solby Coalfield projects. It wasn't concerned with mining and engineering, however, but houses and its expanding community. We had 50 homes and a community centre to build, and I was to be sent to run the operation as site manager, thereby fulfilling Rodney's prediction. He came to see me on site and congratulated me, saying he always knew his BSc was not British Sugar Corporation, but Bachelor of Science, and I was putting it to good practical use as he'd always hoped. Then he went off to his Lancashire patch, and I never saw or heard from him again. My track record in those three and a half years at the company had been exemplary. I now knew how to build quality houses, and I also knew that I deserved this chance. Not only of this my first job on my own, but working closer to home with the commute being less draining. Just before beginning the Selby Caulfields job, I was called into the office to meet Rodney's replacement as Fairclough's Yorkshire MD, a guy called Roger Salas. It was evident from the off, that he didn't like me, and I certainly didn't like him. No doubt he considered me a young, overconfident, golden balls, as Victoria Beckham was later to call her footballer husband, whose travelling expenses were far too high. I thought he was a slimy, disingenuous, corporate, commercial type who couldn't hold a candle to Rodney as a leader. He had a big fat face with thin receding hair that exposed an overlarge forehead and spectacles that didn't suit him. He leaned back arrogantly and almost disinterestedly in his big chair and told me he was transferring me to a chemical works job in Lackenby near Stockton. I was to be part of an elite engineering team who would not only set the job out but go on to supervise the works, reporting to the site manager. It's a good opportunity, he stated. You are meeting up with your new colleagues at the services on the A1 at Scotch Corner at 7.30am on Monday. I wish you all the best. Do you have any questions? There's just one thing I replied. He looked at me surprised that I should have anything to say. I ain't going. A short and meaningful silence ensued. Pardon, he responded. But I was icy calm and assertive. I'm not going, Mr Salas. I've been commuting around Yorkshire for the past four years now, not seeing my family as much as I would want to, but realise that's what I signed up for. Geordie land is different, and I don't want to go there, it's too far. He was not pleased, but not angry either, for that would be too near to passion. Get back to your site, HR will be in touch, was his parting shot and veiled threat. HR did get in touch, but to agree that my contract of employment was initially with Fram Gerard Yorkshire, and hadn't been amended with the merger, so I was technically correct about my terms and conditions of employment. Up yours and over, Roger. They see you have to be lucky in any career, and I was here when the Selby housing job was won within days of this altercation, and it suited all parties for me to go there. If luck is what is bestowed by my watchful Irish ancestors, then I don't believe in it. But if it is where preparedness meets opportunity than I do. In any event, I was off to Selby to set up my own bespoke team, knowing from my football that recruitment of the right players was paramount to success and my quality of life. Bob Dennison taught me that once assembled, your players have to buy into the culture that you set from your values and the way you want to play, not forgetting that I was now also a qualified Football Association coach. Sport is so similar to business, but it's way ahead in its principles and practices and I was lucky to be in that world also. It was a combination made in heaven for my career. Leadership is the solution. It eats strategy for breakfast and I knew this instinctively from a young age. I hence set about the business of building this team with a calm assertiveness that I later thought spooky for one so young. 25 years and 5 months young, to be precise. Gary Schofield, my project quantitiver, was to be in charge of the finances. He was a gift to me from head office and a welcome one because we got on well and respected each other. Mild-mannered Gary looked just like the rock star Tom Petty with his long straight blonde hair and gentle smile. We only fell out once, when he was economical with the truth around the project accounts, after I spotted something booked to my job when I didn't think it should have been. He didn't think that I should be that interested, especially as I was a rookie site manager of just a few weeks, but I put him right. Again, looking back, it was a pretty ballsy thing for one so young, but I'd had Richard Clough and Rodney Anderson as teachers and role models the people in my life were turning out to be much more important than anything else. The next two recruits were walk-ups, or outside hires that you often get when a project opens up with a new contractor in a town. Faithful to the unwritten rule that 50% of outside hires don't work out, one of these was great, the other a disaster. Dave Reader was a local lad, mid-thirties, but with thinning hair ruddy face, and teeth that suggested he was a heavy smoker. He lived yards from the site, and as a foreman bricklayer, was looking for a job where he could fall out of bed and into work. He struck lucky. Dave was a scruffy sod, a way asked to smarten himself up, and he did so. I struck lucky, for he was quickly to become my general foreman, my number two, and bought into the culture of obsessive tidiness attention to detail and hard work with high energy and pace. I was to do to him what Cluffy did to me in getting a disciple and then trusting and believing in them. Light the blue touch paper and stand back. The disaster was an overweight, cocky ground worker called Colin Hickin, or C Hickin as was amusingly printed on the payroll inspiring a legion of Kentucky Fried type gags. He was a ganger and I needed one, so I went against the American business advice of it's better to have a hole than an asshole," and what a consummate asshole he was. Lazy and cheeky, he brought some chicken impersonators with him too, as that the people he recruited all referred to me as either cock or love, which I'd hated from my very first sortie into the West Riding. Timekeeping, tardiness, safety, quality, none of these were as good as we wanted, but things were very unionised at the start of the coalfield project, and I didn't want any industrial strife breaking out on my first job. Fortunately, it all came to a head very early on, when they abandoned the concrete pour early to go to the pub, and the work was spoiled. I was angry enough to take the initiative and contacted the union to advise them that I had a dad in the wool arsehole on my payroll was preventing some of their more worthy workers from getting a decent job with us. As always in my experience of the trade union movement, they were helpful, understanding and proactive in getting the chicken and his brood out of my life and some of their more worthy workers into it. In return, they knew I would treat their members as well as humanly possible and better than most. Simple really and an early example of becoming a good place to work in order to become a good company to deal with. The Sewell Group was to enter the Sunday Times 100 Best Companies to Work For listing for operating the same philosophy 30 years later. A better groundwork scan meant we made progress with the foundations, but it was the bricklayers that were now the problem. I could recruit them, but not the decent productive ones like I had in Leeds. The concrete strip footings were suffering from a marked absence of substructure brickwork and therefore internal services and ground floor slabs could not commence. The progress of the site was slowing to a halt as the unionised brickies we had would do nothing but argue that a price of £28 per thousand was not enough and needed to be half as much again before they would have a real go. They claimed to know better than our bonus surveyor and were adamant that our prices were wrong for this site. We'd reached an impasse that was becoming a crisis, and we were being held to ransom by tradesmen who did not know what decent productivity was. Then, once more, Lady Luck, or was it deserved payback, intervened. After another round of abortive talks with the incumbent bricklers, I was in a pretty dark mood, until I looked out of my office window and saw three familiar characters walking slowly down the road, as if they were in a western gunfight scene. It was the legendary Leeds gang of Sefton and Grogan, these two plus their labourer that we had at Cottingley, and my heart leaped like a gazelle. They were simply the best, most productive team of bricklayers I had ever come across, and they knew it. They were on rockstar money all the time when I had them in Leeds, and then three times more than I was getting. What were they doing coming to sleepy old Selby? Sefton and Grogan came up the external staircase to my office while their labourer went out onto site to view the setup. Eric Grogan saddled into the room and said, Now then, Paul, how are you doing? Eric Sefton came in with him but said nothing and went over to view the site drawings without asking permission or saying hello. ''Lots of fams we know brickwork on them,'' Eric observed. ''That's cos I need a gang of turregs like you lot,'' I playfully replied. ''Just been waiting on you.'' It fell on stony ground as Eric joined Derek examining the drawings. ''Fancy a cuppa?'' I offered, breaking the excruciating silence. ''Nah, you knows. No time for tea,'' Eric replied, not looking up from the drawings. Their labourer, Rob, came into the office. They looked round, and he nodded once at them. The straight-haired Derrick, small of stature, but big in charisma, spoke for the first and only time. "'We'll come. See you Monday,' he said quietly and calmly, before they headed to the door, and went back down the road whence they'd came. "'Cheers,' said the other two, in almost but not quite unison. "'Don't you want the prices?' I've got them here, and they're good. You'll make a fortune. They'll be okay, Eric said as they departed the room, and they were gone. That was it. Simple as that. They came on Monday, and the site flew, just like the scheming in Cottingley had, and all of the other whinging, moaning brickies were taught that it wasn't the prices, or the setup, or the design that was the problem. It was them. Sefton and Grogan knew what counted as of value and it wasn't a few quid per thousand on the price. I later rationalized one of the strangest and briefest business meetings of my career as follows. I was once asked at a press interview what I hated the most and what I loved the most. The answer was one and the same. Arrogance. I hate the arrogance of position and privilege People lording it over others because they can. I love the arrogance of talent and ability and the self-confidence it engenders. Eric Cantona looking around Old Trafford imperiously and in silence after a wonderful girl. Ian Botham walking out purposefully at Lord's, swinging his bat as he goes, saying to the opposition, be afraid, I'm here. Robbie William is bouncing out onto the stage and looking round at the audience he knows he's going to wow. They are all masters of their craft, brimming with self-confidence and comforting their own skin that supreme ability brings. In a strange way that is exactly what Sefton and Grogan were like that day in that site office at Selby. The labourer wanted to know the site was well organised with all of the materials readily available and everything set out in advance so they would never be forced to stop working. If you watched them, and I did, his gang never actually laid bricks much faster than their peers, but they did so continually and consistently without a pause. They were first out of the lobby and last in on break times, and were out working when the others were just gearing up. The bricklers wanted to see the design drawings to check there was nothing over complicated with bonding and gauge that worked without too much fuss. They were then happy to come for they knew they would have a fair crack of the whip with me as they had in Leeds. I was delighted to recruit them for if they were making a shed load of money then so would the project. We now talk at Sewell about being a home for talent and that's exactly what we were back then for this elite gang of bricklers. The summer wore on and the superstructure brickwork was progressing nicely within the restrictive steel grip of the scaffolding. Dave Reader had everything under control and was proving a gem. Even old Jack Armstrong, formerly of Bradford Perm, was in touch congratulating me on what he was hearing down the grapevine. Cluffy wouldn't do that because of his jealous competitive streak. Then one night when I got home, Sue said there had been a telephone call from Frank Markham of the Construction Industry Training Board, CITB, and could I call him back? I did so, and it was the call that changed my life, and as it transpired, many others.